Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. John chapter 20. We'll start in verse 19. Verse 19 of John chapter 20. For the next uh, few weeks, we will continue on the theme of epiphany. Remember, epiphany means revealing. And so first we looked at how Jesus reveals himself to the world. And now we're pivoting from that uh, to how we are called to reveal Jesus to the world. Epiphany is double-sided like that. Jesus reveals himself to the world, and then his people are called to reveal Jesus to the world as well. There's this really cool ancient practice I learned about Uh, during Epiphany, where churches would mark their doors um, with a reminder that they are called to be a light to the nations, because the church is, after all, the house of Jesus. And so if Jesus is a light to the nations, then the church should be, right? And so there's this ancient practice of, of, during Epiphany, marking the church door with a reminder that they exist for the sake of others, that they exist not just for the sake of others near them, but they exist for the sake of the entire globe, um, those in the nations. So, um, This year, our family did a little chalking above our door handle as you walk in. And it's been an incredible reminder. Every time I walk into the door, I see it. And I remember why I even have a home to begin with, uh, to be a light to others. And the same goes with Hope Church, okay? Uh, We need to constantly remind ourselves of, of the mission that God has given us, the good news of Jesus not only comes to us, it comes and goes through us, right? Too often we think the good news of Jesus just lands on us, and then we are blessed, <laughs> and we forget the other part, which is to be a blessing. We, we receive the good news so that it would not just go to us, which is important, but through us in all the unique ways that God has equipped you to do that. Um, I recently came across a collection of biblical passages that clearly describe this call. And we're going to look at a few of them starting this morning uh, with John chapter 20. And I'll read uh, this text to you. You can follow along uh, where you are. We'll pray and then we'll see what God has for us. This is John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, let me just pause for a moment. When John says it's the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that's Sunday. Um, and because it's John chapter 20, understand this is resurrection Sunday. This is after Jesus has died on the cross. This is after um, the long, silent Saturday where he um, was in the grave. Uh, This is Resurrection 
Sunday. This is Easter, okay? And so the disciples being locked where they were for fear of the Jews, uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And so, Lord, would you speak this morning for your servants are listening. And Holy Spirit, we need your empowering presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this might be a little known fact, but I was in a fraternity in college and I was a well-behaved college kid. And so were most of the others in my fraternity, which is why I felt comfortable joining actually in the first place. We had a good reputation on campus, but I learned real quick that these letters, these fraternity letters of mine mean different things to different people. In others' experience, at their college campus, at their time, these letters perhaps came to represent profound trauma and profound, therefore, disgust. And because of this, um, I don't really advertise my letters, and I don't know what others will think when they see them. I see the same thing happening um, in the church today. Many people see our letters Uh, And their response is disgust. Um, And as much as we don't like it, or as much as we try to explain it away, or excuse ourselves, the truth is that many people do not have good associations with Christians these days. And that means you. And that means me. So we can be tempted to do uh, what I do with my fraternity letters. I, I hide them. We lose our desire and we lose our willingness even uh, to talk to others about Jesus or to identify as a Jesus person. Um, and, and so we don't. And so we don't. The only tension there, the only problem with that um, is that telling the world about the good news of Jesus is right at the center <laughs> of our identity as, uh, as a Jesus follower and as a, as a Jesus people, as a church. I mean, we see in the scriptures time and time and time and time again uh, that God calls to himself a people. In fact, that's where we get the word church. Uh, it's, it's, it's from uh, the, the biblical words for to call. To call. God calls the people to himself. That's the church. But why does he do that? Why does he call the people to himself? In order to take part in God's rescue mission. God is rescuing people in all of creation from the effects of the fall to his great glory. I'll say that again. God. God himself is rescuing people in all of his creation 
from the effects of the fall, fall into sin, to his great glory. That's his rescue mission. And for some reason that often escapes me, uh, we, the church, the people of God, are his chosen method to accomplish and pull off this great rescue mission. In the words of Chris Wright, God does not have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. Did you hear that right? Uh, Let me just say it again so you catch the difference. God does not so much have a mission for his church. No, no, no. No, no. God has a church. He calls a church for his mission. But don't just take it from me and don't just take it from uh, Christopher Wright. Uh, Take a look again at our passage this morning. This takes place on Easter Sunday. But the silence of Saturday is still bleeding into Sunday for these disciples here. Because they don't know that Jesus is risen. And so we see them here in verse 19, scared to death, hiding behind closed door. And John tells us right away in verse 19 that it was evening. Things were literally and figuratively dark. This passage, in other words, begins with darkness and fear. And in many ways, I think it reflects our missionary moment as a church, doesn't it? We know way more than the disciples knew at that time. We know that Jesus is alive. But yet, like them, we still are hiding. We're unsure. We wonder, if we're honest, if Jesus is a losing cause in our cultural moment. These are our fears. And so we lock ourselves and we are afraid. But notice something in this text. This passage begins with fear, and it begins with hiding, but it ends with joy. It says in verse 20 that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then that's not it. It not only ends with joy, but also empowerment. And so something happens in between their hiding and fear and the joy and empowerment that needs to happen to us as well. Something happens. I mean, how can we come out of hiding uh, when sometimes we feel like talking about Jesus is a losing cause? How can we come out of hiding? Well, there are three gifts from Jesus in this text. I look at these three gifts like batteries for a flashlight. If our mission is to be a light, um, what we are provided here are, are three batteries for this flashlight, and we need all three What are they? We're going to look at presence. We're going to look at peace. And we're going to look at power. Let's look at all three. So starting with presence. The first thing we have to notice in this passage is that Jesus gives his disciples and gives us his presence. This is the first battery in our flashlight. Look again at the first few verses. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Hang on to those three words. Stood 
among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Notice two things about the presence of Jesus here. Number one, Jesus walks into our brokenness. He willingly, he joyfully, he purposefully walks into our brokenness. Uh, The text says that Jesus came and stood among them. And this is no small thing because what did Jesus stand among? He stood among their unbelief. Uh, They were told numerous times by Jesus himself that Jesus would be glorified and victorious. Uh, But they were in the dark, John says, cowering in unbelief. Jesus stands among them in their unbelief. And then Jesus stands among their fear. The text says the disciples were afraid. Afraid of what? The same fate that the Lord Jesus endured. They saw uh, with their own eyes the arrest and the state-sponsored torture and execution of Jesus. And they didn't want it for themselves, even though Jesus promised that it would come. And then Jesus stands among their hiding. He walks into their hiding. Don't you see? Jesus gladly steps into the spaces that we lock up. The places that we hide out of fear, literally and figuratively, Jesus walks into those spaces. He walks into, with his presence, our places of brokenness. But that's not it. Uh, Jesus walks into our brokenness with his wounds on display. The risen Lord Jesus, as we see in this text, still has the scars on his resurrection body. This truth alone could be an entire book. This truth alone could be a life's worth of contemplation. That Jesus so identifies with our wounds that he wears his for all of eternity. Um, It's been said that God's wounds and only God's wounds can speak to our wounds. And that's what we see in this text here. He walks into our wounds with his wounds. When you pray in Jesus' name, he receives your cries with scarred hands and lifts them to his Father. That's what we have in the presence of Jesus. He not only comes into our brokenness, he shows himself in solidarity with our woundedness and brokenness. Imagine for a moment that you're graduating from college and your parents paid it all off by working really hard and making all kinds of sacrifices their entire lives, but you were embarrassed about your parents um, which is a common thing in college. And so you cut them off. You never called them all four years. You never invited them up to visit on parent weekend. You never told others about them. You didn't even have pictures of them in your dorm or in your campus house. And you didn't even invite them to your graduation. And this broke their heart thousands of times. And you knew it. 
But while sitting in graduation, feeling alone, and seeing the other parents like this, the shame and the guilt kind of rushes in like a dam breaking or like an avalanche falling. And you think to yourself, what have I done? And then imagine, it's at that very moment, it's at that very moment of shame and guilt that they come walking up to you in tears at the graduation. But these tears are not tears of anger. These are tears of pride. They're proud of you and they hug you. What does that hug feel like in your mind's eye? What does that hug feel like? But I want to ask you this. What if you freshly understood that Jesus willingly draws near even as you are embarrassed about him? When you, like Peter, betray him, when we're so fearful and maybe embarrassed of his mission, when we say no to what is central to what he is calling us to, he still draws near. Look, we can be on mission, on his mission, because we have his presence, his unique presence, even when we fail him. His presence. We have his peace as well. We have his peace. Notice what it says again, verse 19, starting in verse 9. When he walks in, uh, the door's being locked. He says what? First thing, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed his hands and his side, as we talked about. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Peace be with you was a common greeting in those days. It's still a common greeting across the world. But Jesus says it twice. So he's not just saying hello to his disciples on Easter Sunday, is he? He's not just doing that. Um, He's imparting what the Hebrew Bible calls shalom. Shalom was a deep, holistic, relational peace. Peace or or flourishing with our relationship to God, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to one another, and even our relationship to creation, our relationship to the nature around us and the world that God created. This is shalom. This is what true peace is, not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of a flourishing relationship, Uh, the way things are meant to be, where things grow, where things develop, where, where things unfurl into their created purposes. That's what shalom means. And it's a beautiful word because it's a beautiful reality that was lost in the garden. See, it was present in the garden briefly, just like two chapters of Genesis. And then chapter three and the rest of the scriptures, we see this sort of expulsion from the garden. And we see this sort of shalom vandalized um, as Cornelius Plantinga puts it, this vandalized shalom, we see this unpacked in all of its terrible evil and injustice and, and disgustingness, like all of it just gets unpacked page after page after page in our Bibles. But there is a promise of shalom throughout all of the junk. 
This promise is like threaded all the way throughout from Genesis 3 um, till this moment, isn't it? Till this moment in John 20 where Jesus says, finally, 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 it's here. Shalom. Peace. Real, real relational flourishing in peace. It's here. And we find out a few things about this peace in this text. First thing, it speaks kindness. It speaks kindness, uh, this peace does. I mean, what would you expect an utterly holy, sinless king of the universe, risen in holiness, uh, to say when he walks into his disciples who, remember, failed him, rejected him, are now hiding, scared, faithless. Uh, what would you expect him to say and do? It could maybe scold him, maybe criticize him, at least say, stop being cowards, right? Well, this king, the true king of the universe, does none of that. He says, peace, shalom, be with you. Not once, but twice. This is kindness, the kindness of God. His peace speaks of God's salvation. God's salvation. Uh, They saw the Lord, it says in this text. If you look at verse 20. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They saw the Lord and he bestows peace, not curse. That is one very good definition of salvation. Their sins did not trigger judgment from the judge of all. Why? Because the judge, just a few days earlier, became judged for them. The judge of all becomes judged on the cross in their place. One New Testament scholar says divine appearance usually would strike terror in the life of a human because the common Hebrew belief that to see God would mean that one would die or be undone. But when Jesus looks at you, do you know that he says peace? This is the peace that comes from salvation. Or as one person put it, Jesus's peace on Easter is the compliment of it is finished on the cross. The, the utterance it is finished on the cross on Friday is the compliment to the utterance peace be with you on Sunday. On Sunday, for the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. I have a very small Cape Cod house, which we love. And we also have three very large boys. I guess if you count me, that's four, but I'm speaking to my kids their bodies are large and they're getting larger by the day. Uh, they have large voices. They have large personalities and they have large amounts of energy, which praise God. Those are all amazing things. What that usually means is that I have to um, go upstairs often where their bedrooms are and play referee. Referee is by far my least favorite role as a dad to my three boys. But sadly, it's becoming the main reason I go upstairs. So all the more powerful, if you think about it, if I went upstairs randomly, not to shh, not to shh, 
our puppies sleeping <laughs> or, or to break up squabbles, uh, but to play with them, to give them my smile and to give hugs all around. See, I'm afraid most of us see Jesus mainly as a referee and not as a savior who gives us his peace. Remember, when Jesus speaks, things happen. His words are not our watered-down words. His words are not our imprecise words. His words are not our bent-up words. And add to that his divinity. He is the capital W word who spoke in, in, in all things were created, ex nihilo, um, out of nothing. And you get the words of Jesus. That's what we have here. And so when he speaks, he creates. When he speaks, it's like um, something happens. It has to happen. His word does not come, out, uh, come back void. It's just, it's powerful, full proof, 100% powerful. I mean, it's a faint whisper uh, when I uh, officiate a, west, uh, a wedding. My words in these moments when I'm officiating a wedding create a marriage, weirdly, strangely. Um, that's Jesus all the time, amped up to the divine level. And here, what does he say? He says, be at peace. Those are his words, twofold. Are you afraid this morning? Are you hiding this morning? Jesus says peace. He says it. So receive, don't resist his words. We have presence. We have peace. And lastly, we have empowerment. This is the third battery in the flashlight. Look at verse 21 and following. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed. On them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There are three superpowers in this small section. Um, I'll call it the power of invitation, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of forgiveness. So first, the power of invitation. There is nothing as powerful as an invitation to take part in something big and exciting and amazing. It's like uh, the feeling of pride on Amanda Gorman's face when she took part in the inauguration this week, or the feeling of pride and belonging when coach calls you uh, onto the travel team, or the feeling of, of excitement when you get the acceptance letter to the college of your dream uh, or the graduate school that's number one on your choice um, on your list, or when you get an email from a friend who says, I have this idea, I have this business idea, let's, let's quit our jobs and let's start a venture together. There's a, an excitement to take part in something big that happens. It's natural. Well, those pale in comparison to what Jesus is doing here. He says in verse 21, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus tells them two things and let them sink in. He says, number one, I, Jesus, was sent by my father in heaven to fulfill his mission. And guess what? Number two, you are too. You are too. That's the power of an invitation. And it's extended to you. 
And then there's the power of God. It's not as if we're sent like Jesus was sent um, in our own strength or by ourselves. Jesus, um, you know, often I think we think that Jesus comes in the Gospels and he plays the first half of the game. And then he sort of uh, gets benched or goes to the locker room or kind of stands in the stands and watches us as we play the second half of the game. Um, No, it's still his mission. Uh, Jesus is still on mission. Uh, We just get the dignity of partnership with him. Do you see? This is why Jesus visibly breathes. Uh, The Greek word for spirit or for breath and spirit. um, The the Greek word for spirit is, is essentially breath. And so that's why Jesus is visibly doing this and then says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is telling them, he's telling us that we need nothing short of God's empowering presence to do this mission. I mean, after all, if the Holy Spirit, if God, the Holy Spirit is who empowered God, the son, Jesus, in his ministry, it's a very safe bet that we need Holy Spirit too. As one scholar put it, On the day of Pentecost, this small breath becomes a rushing mighty wind and the whole church is formed into a new humanity. Jesus is saying, you not only get my mission, you get Holy Spirit to do so. And then lastly, the power of forgiveness, power of forgiveness. In verse 23, we see it. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We don't do the forgiving um, as if we're God, God does the forgiving. I mean, even in this statement from Jesus, the forgiving is in the passive verb tense, which means we're not doing it. The disciples aren't doing it. God is doing it. We're merely stewards or proclaimers of uh, the opportunity for forgiveness. And then the assurance of forgiveness if people take that opportunity uh, in faith. This is an amazing statement. Jesus is entrusting us here with the with gospel ministry. I mean, he's He's kind of saying what our mission entails, in a sense, by saying we are to proclaim good news of forgiveness from sins by God and Jesus. Um, In other words, we are called to simply speak good news, not, as it's been said, give good advice. And we usually get that messed up and backwards, don't we? We think our calling is to give good advice. Really, our calling is to speak good news. Now, embedded in that good news is, of course, The bad news of sin, that if you don't receive forgiveness or admit your need for forgiveness, even, um, then you die in your sins. And forgiveness is withheld, Jesus says. But when you admit your bankruptcy and your brokenness and you come to Jesus with empty hands, he receives your sins with his scarred hands and says, yeah, I died for those. There's no condemnation for you anymore. Forgiveness is yours. And the amazing thing is that we get to, on mission, speak that forgiveness to others in the name of Jesus. Probably my favorite part of being a pastor on Sunday is the assurance of pardon. Uh, I, I like the benediction a lot, too. And, I, you know, preaching's not, not half bad either. But the assurance of pardon. Guys, that's an amazing thing. A sinner who stands in the company of sinners, myself, can assure people of of, of salvation, not by my authority, but because of what Jesus says. That's an amazing thing. 
And it's in a sense what all of us are called to do. Step one, receive his forgiveness. We admit our sin. Step two, extend his forgiveness. In the Spirit's power, we own our weakness, and then we point to other, other people to our source of forgiveness. That's, that's our mission. That's our mission. But we must do both, right? We must first receive and be humbled by his forgiveness. And this will do two things to us as we close. As a church, hope, and as we think about our epiphany mandate, our, our mandate to reveal Jesus to others, think about this. Number one, if we receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus, it'll cause us to extend his message of forgiveness to others. There will be no other motivation that will get you out of hiding than that. You have to first receive it. And so I just ask you, have you received it? Have you received the forgiveness of God through Jesus? He comes to you in your sin and speaks peace. Are you receiving it or rejecting it? That's the question. That's the question. And secondly, it will shape our posture as we extend his message of forgiveness to others. See, there are two things about mission, our stance and our posture. Our stance and our posture, where we stand on things, is very important. But how we stand on those things is also very important. And this passage tells us where to stand. We stand on the gospel of grace. The centrality of Jesus in his mission. That's where we stand. We are sent as he was sent. That's where we stand. It's in Jesus' name that we do our mission. And it's to him we point. That's where we stand. And we're called to point others to Jesus. That's where we stand. Okay, so there's a lot of stances that we could impart and we could unpack this morning. But there's also a posture, how we stand. And it has to be humility, folks. We are humbled by his presence. We are humbled by his peace that he gives us. We are humbled by his empowerment, by by God the Spirit. And when we have that, we will read verse 21. You are the sent ones. Not as some monarch twisting our arm to get excited about our mission. But our mission will be one of excitement and willingness. And it will even look like, Lord willing, Jesus, as we stay low to the ground and point others to him. So, Lord, would you do that and make that work in us this morning? As we consider Epiphany, this revealing of who you are, would that same revealing play out in the life of every single person listening in this morning, and myself included? Would we consider your gracious presence? Would we consider the peace you give us with God, yourself, with others? And would we consider power we have, power from your invitation, power from Holy Spirit, and yes, the power of forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. 
For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.